On this episode of China Unscripted, China's communist regime is trying to silence Hong Kong, but an 18-year-old activist is giving them, and you, a voice. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And I'm sorry to say we don't have Shelley with us today. Why is that, Matt? Uh, well, apparently Shelley has been up all night uh, writing uh, an America Uncovered episode about the whole GameStop uh, thing and Reddit and how, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm sure you already know about this. And actually that episode is already published by now if you're watching this. So yeah, so unfortunately Shelley couldn't make it. So, But that's okay. We have a very exciting interview today. Joining us today is Joyce Ho, founder and director of Project Black Mask. Joyce, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Definitely. So why don't you tell us a bit about uh, Project Black Mask? It's not a COVID thing, right? No, no. Um, so really, Project Black Mask, well, I would say it might be a little bit of a COVID thing because mm. the idea came about while I was quarantined at home um, during COVID. Oh. So for me, I was on the streets pretty much at least once or twice a month during, at protests in New York for Hong Kong uh, prior to COVID. So once COVID hit, obviously, we had a really big problem with a lot of people were feeling hopeless because we're already all of these Hong Kongers are overseas. So seeing something like what's happening in Hong Kong happen and not being able to be there physically and, and fight alongside those that you feel such a strong connection with is really difficult. But then having the quarantine and not even being able to go out onto the streets of New York or Boston or wherever you are in the U.S. was an added difficulty. So I wanted to figure out some sort of way that Hong Kongers and people all around the world could show their support for Hong Kong and continue demonstrating the fact that there's no, you know, there's no stop in what we're doing just because of a global pandemic. We have to continue fighting and people won't just be blind to what's happening in Hong Kong because there is a pandemic, because as a lot of us do know, China has taken the opportunity of the world's attention being diverted to coronavirus to take advantage of Hong Kong. So I, so Project Black Mass really started as a video project where I would collect a lot of videos from people all around the world saying, I'm from blank and I stand with Hong Kong. Hmm. And I wanted to first show Hong Kongers that the world stood with them, but I also wanted to do something a little more, I would say practical in terms of making change for Hong Kong. And so I sent a lot of these videos to Congress people, and I wanted to make sure that the, Amer the American citizens could show their voices to our representative and, and tell them that we do care and that you guys need to vote on behalf of a pro-democracy side for Hong Kong. And so I think that was, you know, a lot of these Congress people were very, very appreciative of the fact that I could show them that, you know, Americans care and we, we do want the United States to be a part of this and we want to be on the side of pro-democracy and not on the side of the CCP. So that was, you know, the early time for, for Project Black Mask. And then uh, as we grew a little bit bigger, I really came up with this idea that I wanted to become an outlet where people who are oppressed by the CCP could get their information, could spread their, their uh, stories to the free world. So I'm working on a part of, my, of Project Black Mask where we can try to get young people around my age. I'm 18 years old. So getting young people to become a part of Project Black Mask 
to the point where they can talk about their ethnic groups. So maybe I can find a teenager who is an, a Uyghur who is very, very um, serious about fighting for the human rights in Xinjiang for the Uyghur population or a Tibetan. And so maybe they can do the same thing that I'm doing for the same cause and we can come together. And as we all know, being together is way more, it, it is a lot stronger than just being apart because China, it's huge and China has so much power. And if, you know, we're split up, we can't do anything. But if we come together, we can do a lot more. Yeah, I, I saw that uh, fairly recently you co-wrote an op-ed uh, for Teen Vogue with uh, a Uyghur activist and a Tibetan activist. So uh, you, you really do seem to be finding opportunities to work together with these various different persecuted groups in China. Yes. Uh, so for me, I think when I first started uh, being a part of this community in terms of a groups that are oppressed by the CCP, everybody was very uninformed about the other groups. You know, hmm. I didn't know anything about the Tibetans or the Uyghurs. And then you start reading up on it and you realize that your fight is really one and the same. We're still fighting against the same enemy. Maybe there are little differences in the way that they're treating us. But at the end of the day, we do want to show CCP that we will oppose their actions because they violate human rights, because they violate simple democracy and autonomy and freedom in general. And so that's why I really want to show the world and show all of these groups that we can work together because our path is really one path and we're, we're fighting for the same thing. We're fighting against the same thing as well. And a lot of the tactics the CCP uses against all these various groups are very similar. Uh, a lot of the cultural genocide that's happened to the Tibetans, happened to the Uyghurs, and in many ways has happened to the people of Hong Kong. Absolutely, yeah. So Project Black Mask began around the time of the beginning of the quarantine. So that was uh, probably around March of last year. So still before the national security law was implemented in, um, what was it, June of that year? It was July 1st, 2020. Yeah. So yeah. it was right after. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in 2019, we saw the massive protest movement. We saw a lot of young people really getting involved in, in standing up to the Chinese Communist Party. How did... Uh, the, the coronavirus sort of affect how young people uh, were carried on the protest movement? Well, I mean, obviously there's going to be a decline in people coming out because Hong Kongers after, after SARS, they, they were really able to, to understand a viral um, pandemic kind of situation, just like what we're going through right now. So they, they understand uh, how to protect themselves. And I know that a lot of Hong Kongers, even since SARS have had math, they always carry hand sanitizer, like that kind of thing that I would say Americans were not prepared for. Hong Kongers were always prepared for. All of these youngsters, they grew up in a society where they knew that, you know, if the next pandemic comes along, we have to be prepared. So all of them, I would say, knew that the protests would have to die down a little bit. And we've definitely seen that. We haven't seen as many massive protests on the street. Uh, but, you know, I think that it's also a result of the Chinese government cracking down a little bit more in March when the pandemic came down, even though it was prior to the national security law, we saw a lot of the Chinese government's threats coming down. And, and even though the uh, extradition bill was repealed, it didn't mean anything on behalf of the Chinese government, I would say. Like, yeah, that was them stepping back a little bit because they realized that the extradition bill was not something that was feasible, but they definitely knew that they would have to continue kind of slowly uh, taking 
taking control of Hong Kong. And I think that these Hong Kongers knew. So a lot of them were getting arrested even in those months between March and July. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the protests died down a lot because people were scared, I would say. And for good reason, of course, you know, you don't want to be under any sort of uh, incarceration by the Chinese government or even the Hong Kong government at this point. So in March, I just think, you know, you didn't see any more protests with like 2 million, 3 million people anymore. You saw very small spurts of youngsters coming out and saying, we're going to block these roads. We're going to uh, protest on this street and run away as soon as possible. I think there were very local efforts to do things, but no more large scale because the youngsters, I would say, understood that they didn't want to endanger any more lives than they had to. And I think it's it's ironic during the, uh, the, the protest movement in 2019, the Hong Kong protesters often wore face masks, so police couldn't identify them. And then there was this whole big thing about the anti-mask law. You're not allowed to wear masks. And then COVID. And then, oh, uh, actually, please wear your masks all the time, which is too bad. It would have been a perfect opportunity to come out on the streets and protest. And they wouldn't have known who you are. Yeah, yeah. But so let's talk about the national security law, because that definitely changed things. It, It basically made criticism of the CCP impossible in Hong Kong. And, you know, this was a protest movement that was calling them Chi-Nazis. So how has this uh, forced the protest movement to evolve? Well, so the national security law has not only affected Hong Kongers in Hong Kong, but also Hong Kongers like me who Mm -hmm. are overseas. Uh, The national security law is really, it's very, very vague. You know, they can arrest you based off of anything. In essence, you know, we've seen people being questioned because they're wearing black or maybe even arrested because they're wearing black that kind of idea they can arrest you over anything they can arrest you because oh i heard from a neighbor that you are protesting against china you know that kind of idea it's really like a big brother situation for me i am looking at it and and everybody's turning on each other and it's it's really ridiculous and for the national security law to be enacted it really meant that a lot of people stopped protesting because there was a genuine fear. Now there's a law that states that if you ever show any signs of oppression, uh, not oppression, opposition towards the CCP, you could be arrested and you will go back to China, even if you know it's not publicly known that you're in China. We all know that if you are a figure that is strong enough to show opposition to China, you will be sent back there and who knows what's going to happen to you. The national security law put a lot of fear in a lot of people's minds and hearts. And even for me, you know, I had to contact a lot of people, my friends in Hong Kong who might be protesting and tell them, you know, please stay safe. This is it's really crazy. Even I have to stay safe. Sometimes my parents don't feel comfortable with me walking on the streets in New York because there are a lot of people who have really shown a lot of open criticism towards our movement, even in New York. And, you know, you never know who's going to call the national security hotline and say, I know this person and, you know, they've been here on these days and we want you to arrest them. And this can happen in both the U.S. and Hong Kong and and in Hong Kong. You know, you never know how far the CCP reach really goes. And uh, so the national security laws really put it, I would say, put a damper on everything that's happening. But people aren't slowing down with it. And we're actually seeing that it's caused a lot of activists in Hong Kong, the really huge activists to you know, flee to foreign countries like United States, to England, um, to different places where they can, you know, express their freedoms well and can show the world what they're really going up against. 
Yeah, I was going to ask if if you had any uh, plans to go back to Hong Kong, but you feel like even in the U.S. you're in danger. Yeah, it's I I absolutely do. You know, you've been I've been followed sometimes. Uh, you you never know who's like there. I've been yelled at on the streets whenever you. Yeah, even even after my protesting, you know, like when you're in a big group, a lot of these uh, pro CCP supporters they won't yell at you because they're they're afraid. But like you know, being alone on the streets, they might recognize you. Since I wore a mask when I was protesting, and now I'm wearing a mask every like all the time, so they recognize you. They might recognize your eyes, and then they'll yell at you and stuff like that. And so it's gotten to the point where I absolutely know that I cannot go to Hong Kong. Uh, obviously, can't go to China. Uh, but being in the U.S. is also a danger as well. And I know that all of my activist friends are also taking those precautions because they know that the Chinese Communist Party is dangerous and that they have a lot of supporters. And their supporters don't just end in China. They're all over the world. Well, so these Hong Kong activists must be really excited that you have created something like Project Black Mask, where where I assume they can, as well as anyone around the world, can still uh, make their voices heard in support of Hong Kong. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of people are still, a lot, I've noticed that a lot of people have kind of slowed down on trying to send me videos, but I do get a lot of really supportive messages from people who are saying, you know, I'm, I am afraid and I have to respect them for that because I understand, especially coming from a family who really, I, like my parents, they actually left Hong Kong prior to 1997 because their families understood the danger of the CCP. So coming from a family that really taught me how dangerous this kind of government can be, I understand why people are so afraid of them and I have to respect it. And I think that it's noble for them to even talk to me and, and tell me that I support you. I just don't want to make it public. Like, I really appreciate those kinds of messages. And I mean, considering the risks like even you are facing, like, you know, you said you're 18. What makes you want to do this versus Anything else an 18-year-old in New York can be doing? Yeah. So, I mean, my story started in the summer of 2019 when the extradition bills protests first happened. And for me, when I, I first sat down and I told my parents, look, I want to go to protests. I want to stand on the right side of history. They said, you know, you even posting something, one post could get you in trouble with the Chinese government. You know, that could be it for you. You can't go back to Hong Kong anymore. You're going to be in danger for probably a really long time. And I and I said to them, look, I'm seeing all of these 18. Back then I was like 17, 16. I told them I'm a 16 year old and I, I don't I see all of these kids that are my age or similar to my age. And they're fighting with their lives on the streets of Hong Kong. And I was just lucky enough to be in the U.S. I was just lucky enough to have parents who had the ability to come to the United States to enjoy the freedoms that we have here. But, you know, there are millions of teenagers my age that don't have that freedom in Hong Kong right now. And I feel at least a small responsibility to use what I have been given to give them a voice. Because in Hong Kong now, they really don't have a voice. And for me, I think that my platform has given them a space to educate the American population on what's happening in Hong Kong. For me, it, it came down to first responsibility, but also just like a longing to be... To, to help Hong Kong in any way possible. I, I felt like, you know, I always went back to Hong Kong over the summers and I obviously I haven't been back in a while now, but you know, I, I always have felt a connection to Hong Kong and I feel that it's so, so unfortunate that democracy can be taken away like that. And growing up in, in the United States, I never 
imagined that democracy was so freely, you know, given and then taken away from people. It's fragile. Yeah, exactly. So in this past year, you've seen how easy it is for democracy to be just revoked from from so many people. It's it's incredible to me that this can even happen. But that's why I really wanted to be a part of this. And, and even though it's a danger for me for probably the rest of my life, as an 18-year-old, I think that my voice will be the voice of the future. And I, I tell this to you know a lot of people that I am the future of this world. My generation is the future of this world. And if we don't stand up to do something, then nobody else will. Well, my generation is working pretty hard to make sure that your generation won't have a future. So I was just thinking, you know, of, of all the decisions that I made, you know, at 18 that were going to affect me for the rest of my life. Like, I wish the decisions I made were like standing up for human rights because, you know, (laughs) as as these things go, like you could probably make worse choices. Well, I imagine a lot of uh, like the people you go to school with are probably really inspired by your story. I hope so. Um, I mean, I just graduated high school last year, so I had a a group of very, very close friends who Mm -hmm. were always, you know, there to support me. We had wear a black shirt day in support of Hong Kong and they all showed up in black shirts. And I'm, I'm so appreciative of even though it's, you know, a lot of them came from families that are very pro CCP. But as I was saying, if you grow up in the U S you probably have a very different point of view when it comes to freedom and democracy. So for them, they knew, you know, we want to support you. And in high school for me, it was just, I never had a lot of opposition from people, which I'm so thankful for. And, uh, Everybody let me say whatever I wanted to say, because I think, you know, at the bottom, at the end of the day, a lot of people know that, you know, what I'm saying is right. Even if, you know, there might be some ways that the Hong Kong protesters are going about it wrong. You know, a lot of people disagree on the violence and stuff like that, but we're fighting for the right thing. And, and a lot of people really, really understood that, that sentiment. And my friends supported me and even wanted to come to my rallies and stuff like that. So I really appreciate that. But in college, I've had a little bit of difficulty for obvious reasons. You know, I haven't been on campus. I don't know mm-hmm. a lot of people, uh, but I am trying and I'm part of. So I go to NYU right now. My alma mater. I mean, we we had a uh, we had a uh, rally at NYU last year and we had literal opposition from pro CCP students at NYU. Mm. So we were standing on one side and we, we had them on the other side. They were like cursing at us and like yelling and just it was insane. Because Nathan Law was there, and um, mm. he was he was giving a talk at NYU, a law school, and they were just like very very angry. So I imagine that if the coronavirus uh, clears up, I will also face some sort of opposition on campus, because it's just in the nature of a lot of people. Even now, like a lot of people will uh, message me on Instagram or Facebook and be like, you know, you better not be doing this stuff on NYU's campus because we will be against it. Uh, uh-huh. But I am lucky that I found a group of, kind of, I would say, mentors. They're upperclassmen at NYU right now, and, and they they formed a, a advocacy group for Hong Kong over these past two years. Cool. And I'm a part of that right now, and we're trying to organize events and stuff for Hong Kong. So I'm really thankful to have people like them that are able to guide me in, in navigating NYU and also navigating organizing events for schools and different universities to make sure that we can get the message out to our generation. And this is a big problem in a lot of American universities, but you know, I went to NYU too, so I kind of know what it's like there. Uh, lots of students from China, the school it has a lot of relationships with China. There's NYU Shanghai. Uh, how do you feel the school has been supporting you 
in these efforts? I mean, I know it's hard since you can't hold events like you used to. Yeah, I I think so. I've heard from friends who have organized events at NYU that it is a little bit more difficult for them to get the permits to organize events that are pro pro Hong Kong or mm-hmm. anti CCP. So I mean, that's that. I would say the extent of the difficulty that they've gone through. I maybe when when I have more of an opportunity to organize events or, or speak to NYU boards regarding any sort of pro Hong Kong things that I want to do with with our advocacy group, maybe I'll be able to have some more personal experiences with that. But right now, I think NYU has been quite silent. And uh, my application last year was very centered around my work with Hong Kong, because it's a really big part of my life. So I guess maybe after reading my application, they still felt that, you know, I would be a good addition to their campus. So, you know, you never know. Uh, Maybe some of the admissions officers there really resonate with the fight in Hong Kong. So I, I hope that's true, but I don't know how the board is trying to deal with this situation. I do know that a lot of money comes from China into NYU. Uh, that is something I, I do know. And I don't know if it's changed, but uh, as of right now, that's something that I know that my friends have said is a very big difficulty when it comes to organizing events because of that kind of, you know, monetary benefit that maybe a lot of pro CCP people are giving NYU. I'll be very curious to hear how things go for you once uh, sort of the lockdowns end and things get a little more back to normal. Because yeah, NYU is a very interesting campus. My friend ran into some trouble with Columbia as well. Oh, yeah, Uh, Columbia's. Columbia rejected completely. NYU allowed her. So the event that she was trying to do was a a panel uh, talking about um, panopticism when it comes to the censorship in China. And she she tried to organize an event at Columbia and they rejected it completely. They said, like, you know, we're going to make it as difficult as possible. We don't we don't want to. I don't know why. I don't know if Columbia had their genuine reasons for it. But NYU allowed them to hold the event after a lot of struggle. But uh, Columbia just didn't want them to hold the event there. And, you know, it could be any number of reasons. But I you know, <laughs> it comes down to like one big reason, I would say. And it's just like our stance is very, very uh, radical for them, I want to argue. I, I have no idea what mm. what the reason was. I mean, Columbia University has a very strong Chinese Students and Scholars Association. Yeah. And yeah. typically these organizations are connected to, in one way or another, the Chinese consulate. And, you know, in some schools, they're stronger and some they're not as strong, but Columbia happens to have a pretty... There was a time actually when Chinese consulate members were on the board of the Columbia University Chinese Students and Scholars Association. Uh, That may no longer be the case, but at any rate, they've also... uh, I've heard from people, they've stopped events uh, on campus about different human rights things, you know, organ harvesting in China issues and so on. And so... It's it's no surprise that there's opposition on these campuses because there's actually organizations on, whether it's Columbia or NYU or most major universities, there are organizations that are specifically there to sort of gather, you know, mostly mainland Chinese students. And because of that strong, I guess, uh, influence from the, from the Chinese consulate in one way or another, uh, they can actually form a very powerful opposition group. Mm-hmm. To, to free speech. So there's your there's your panopticon right there. They're always watching you. But on the bright side, that kind of opposition gives you something to leverage and get more exposure. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting because we always joke a lot of the times about how uh, 
how their their opposition is the only thing that's really giving us so much media attention. <laughs> because whenever there's opposition, there's always a news crew that comes and it's like, oh, we want to understand both sides of the story. And then obviously, you know, we, we're a little more, I would say we're more logical. So people like watching what we have to say. But uh, I, I do appreciate the fact that a lot of people, you know, it, the difference between China and America is literally the fact that we, we can speak freely about whatever we want. And so I appreciate their criticism and I try to understand their sides of the story. It strengthens my arguments as well, you know, whenever I'm trying to argue against them. And it gives me something to talk about whenever I go on interviews like this and whenever I have the opportunity to, to talk to people regarding Hong Kong. Have you ever had a situation where you've changed somebody's mind? No. No? Uh, I think there's a spectrum, right? There's people uh-huh. that are very pro Hong Kong and there are people that are in the middle that have no idea what's happening. And then there are people that are just, I love China and that's it. And I think I've been able to change the minds of people who are stand, sitting in the middle. Uh, they might see like the violence and they're like, okay, I'm a little bit more on the side of the, the CCP right now. But then, you know, you tell them a little bit more information and you educate them and then they start to understand the struggle. They start to understand why you're doing this and why it's come to violence. And so they start to move on to our side. But if I'm talking about people who are very anti-Hong uh, anti Kong, pro-CCP, yeah, never able to change their minds. And honestly, I would rather not, uh, I want to say, waste my time with that because they have their opinions, I have mine. And when you're so hell-bent against one thing, it's really difficult to really change your perspective. Well, how, how about you? Why don't you change your perspective and become pro-CCP, huh? I mean, that's a, that's a good point. You know, they've done a lot of good stuff. So maybe I'll, I'll look into that and see if I want to change my mind. <laughs> I mean, look at all the skyscrapers in China yeah. and all the high-speed rails they stole technology from Japan for. I mean, like, just a amazing country. And, like, the low number of COVID cases is really incredible. I might just move there, you know, because I don't want to deal with COVID anymore. They have, a, they have zero infections right now. Yeah, yeah. Those new uh, anal swab tests are really leading the way. Uh so have you, I know earlier you were talking about reaching out to other persecuted groups in China. Have you been able to do that on campus at all? On campus? No. No? I, I, I you know, it's, it's difficult. Obviously, everything comes down to COVID-19, but yeah. there are a lot of people who are very outspoken on campus right now. I, I'm also a part of Amnesty International at NYU. And Amnesty International, I've seen, has really been focusing. We have like these uh, discussion groups where we talk about, you know, what events do we want to plan once this is all over? Or what events can we plan right now online? And most of the events that we've even considered planning are either like anti-CCP or like, let's raise money for the Uyghurs. Let's try to stop fast fashion brands that are using uh, using uh, labor from, from China, like the Chinese and concentration camp, that kind of idea. So I think that's pretty interesting. I haven't been able to, you know, directly talk to all of these people. But what I have seen is that a lot of them do show opposition towards all of the human rights violations of the the CCP. So I think that's the extent of, you know, these different, I don't know where they're from. I don't know what their ethnic backgrounds are. But I do assume that a lot of them might be from Tibet or might be from Taiwan or South Southern Mongolia, either even. Yeah. Well, I know you're also part of the Captive Nations Coalition, which is working with the U.S. government to try and bring these different groups together. Yes. Uh, well, what has that process been like? Oh, the Captive Nations. Well, I have to thank Sihun Kim. He's watching. But I, of course he's watching. He's a good fan. 
the Captive Nations Coalition was his kind of, it's his child. It's really where he brought all of us together from different ethnic backgrounds. And, and all of these people are being oppressed by China. And he wanted to make a platform where we could all speak together as one. And the same idea that I was talking about before with Project Black Mask, where we can have more people to come together and it makes us stronger together. And so our group is really comprised of a lot of very inspirational people with so many stories. And I would argue that I'm probably the one person that doesn't have like a super, super crazy story when it comes to, to China. And, you know, I look up to every single person there uh, being the youngest one. And what we do is we, we go to D.C. We've been to D.C. A, like a few times and we've talked to Congress people. We've talked to senators and, and even Pompeo most recently. And we discuss with them what's happening and why the United States needs to help. And so what we're trying to push right now is a TCO, a trans transnational, transcontinental criminal organization de designation for China. And really what it does is it's, it's like a sanction for China, like just the overall sanction. And I think that it's a pretty interesting idea, but it's difficult to get something so huge to be passed. But mm -hmm. we do hope that through our work, and, you know, it, no matter how long it takes, I think that it's something that's worth fighting for. Absolutely. And that the Captain Nation Coalition will continue sharing its stories and will continue telling people that the stories of these these oppressed people are not for for you to just read and then forget. But it's for you to read and then take action on. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about Project Black Mask is that it, it gives an opportunity to it's not just stories you like read about like video Images are always has a huge impact on people. You know, people always ask me like, oh, what can I do? What can I do? Yeah. And this is like a really good thing they can do. Yeah, absolutely. So for people watching, like what how would you what would you tell them? How would they set up a video? How would they send what kind of videos are you looking for? Yeah, I, I mean, right now. So I'm trying to create a lot more videos, obviously. Uh, but all you have to do is send a video of your words of support for either Hong Kongers or, or Uyghurs or Tibetans or whoever you want to. I'm going to try to expand my horizons and turn it into a very global kind of thing for opposition against China. And so uh, what you have to do is just send your video to hkblackmask at gmail.com. Or if you just want to follow us and try to understand what we're doing, you can go on Facebook. Uh, it's just Project Black Mask HK, and you'll be able to find us and, you know, follow our journey and see what we're doing. And we're going to be launching a website very soon as well. So that'll be great. great. Not and to be confused with Project Black Mask, the face mask Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Yep, that happened once. And right. I, I really do feel bad. But like, I mean, I think I really like the name Project Black Mask, so I'm not changing it anytime soon. No, it's, a, it's a great name. Um, so so the, the videos... The video is just that people do that would just be like, you know, my name is so-and-so and I'm an NBA all-star and I stand with Hong Kong. Yeah, you don't right. even have to put your name. A lot of people cover their faces too, you know. Okay. Because well, you could wear a black mask, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, we actually have a YouTube channel as well. If you just search up like Project Black Mask HK. Right now I'm keeping the HK because I haven't really created the whole, you know, I haven't really been able to put the the idea of like the Uyghurs or the Tibetans into like fruition, but we're trying right now and then I'll take away the HK. But right now it's Project Black Mask HK on Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we don't have as many followers as, as China Uncensored, but I'm hoping to get there. Um, that's what we call a plug. Yeah, that's, what I, that's the only reason I'm here. <laughs> um, so Self-interest. 
Yeah, but yeah, like I, I really hope that a lot of people will follow us and see, you know, even if we don't get followers, I understand that a lot of people do see our videos and go on our Facebook because it, it, it's also dangerous to actually follow um, an anti-CCP organization or group right now, which is insane to me. Project Black Mask is my child. So I do hope that it's, it creates a lot of inspiration for people and, and shows teenagers or even people younger than me that, you know, we can make a difference and that our voices do matter. Yeah. Well, I think anyone following China Uncensored or China Unscripted will not have a problem following Project Black Mask. Thank you. But uh, yeah, it's, it's also such a great way to, like, as you say, show representatives in the government and have them because they're not going to like read a bunch of stuff They're but like a, a bunch of videos of like all kinds of people talking about that China is important to them. That might actually get them to do something. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any sense how uh, the new Biden administration is is handling all of these things? Uh, obviously, you know, there's the rumors that the Biden administration, you know, is, is very pro-China and doesn't care about uh, Hong Kong at all. And obviously, right now, we haven't seen any action of that sort. But I do I do expect that the Biden administration will not be as uh, hard on the CCP as the Trump administration was. And honestly, we have to thank Trump's administration for doing a lot for not just the Hong Kong movement, but all of us that are in opposition against China. It's It's been really important for us to have an administration, even for four years, that that was able to, to show the world. I think that it, he was able to change a lot of Americans' minds and show them how dangerous the CCP truly is. And and that that means a lot to us, definitely. But uh, I hope that the Biden administration will be able to do the same thing. Maybe even if it's to a lesser extent, I expect that, you know, where there are human rights violations, that's where the United States should intervene and say, you know, we disagree with what you're doing. But I, I do know that Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, has met with prior Secretary Pompeo and has discussed with him how to handle the situation. Secretary Blinken has expressed that he is very anti uh, those human rights violations, and he will take a stance against China if if needed. So hopefully he'll keep on those words and fight for Hong Kong and fight for all of these different places as well. Yeah. I definitely think there is reason to be hopeful for that. And again, something like Project Black Mac is a great way for the American people to tell the Biden administration China is something we care about. Don't trust the CCP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's very difficult, you know, going from an administration that was so strong and going to something that, you know, it, it scared a lot of Hong Kongers. Obviously, a lot of Hong Kongers are pro-Trump for, for good reason. You know, Trump has passed a lot of acts that have been very beneficial for Hong Kong, or at least have shown the world that, you know, the U.S. will stand on the right side of history. But uh, even, you know, Secretary Pompeo was an incredible ally of not just Hong Kongers, but the Uyghurs and uh, Tibetans. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult going from that, going to having such a serious stance in the mind of the Secretary of State to maybe not having such an important place. But I think that we have to fight for, you know, there's nothing that comes free. And so we will continue lobbying. We will continue showing our government that we need representation and that we will continue trying to pass new acts that will protect our people and that it will get up to Biden's desk one day and that he will have to sign in, in, in a positive light for us because, you know, what we're fighting for is the right thing and he and the American people stand behind us, you know? Well, I amen to that and I hope someday soon you guys can uh, meet with Secretary of State Blinken. Hopefully. And uh, then maybe you can 
you know, make a connection for us so we can get him on the show, you know. Definitely try. You might have to talk to Satan about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was this was really, I, I found it very encouraging. Like, it's, it's, it's a great way people can help. Yeah, yeah. So please, if anybody has any questions, just contact me. Um, I am so, so well, open to, like, talking to people about anything and, like, trying to spend my time to educate people on what's happening in Hong Kong. And what would be the best way for people to contact you? Go to the the Black Mask. Yeah, you can either go to Facebook or YouTube or even my Instagram is Joyce, J-O-Y-C-E-M-H-O. And a lot of people have talked to me there. And, uh, you know, that's really cool. And you can see that's my journey. You know, uh, my Instagram is where I first posted my initial support for Hong Kong. And it's where I post everything that I do. Every single rally or event that I've organized has been on my Instagram. So don't have to follow me. If you want to check it out, we have some cool photos. Cool. I'll put a link to uh, all of those things below. And yeah, this has been great. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Well, I think I think what Joyce is doing is incredibly exciting. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, that's amazing. That's that's way better than the things I was doing at 18. I'm glad you didn't share with us what you were doing when you were 18. No, I mean, those are sealed records anyway. Didn't you have purple hair? What? What are you talking about? For green? I have no comment on this. Okay. Well, that's a rabbit hole. A rabbit hole I'm not going to go down in this episode. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Also, I deny everything. Yes. Um, Well, thank you for watching uh, this day. You know, Shelly sends her regards. And really, uh, you know, be sure to to, uh, add your voice to Project Black Mask. I think Joyce will really appreciate that. And so will the people of Hong Kong. It's, It's really a great way to actually get the message out there, I think. Yeah. Well, thanks for watching. I'm Chris Chappell. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And we'll see you next time.